but then they want the boat and the toys and the kayaks and the things to go with it. But the opposite, when contraction happens and the market goes the other direction and the kids move back home with mom and dad, or maybe the kids and the grandkids or multiple families are coming together, where does all their stuff go? It goes into self-storage. And uh, here in America, we seem to want to hold on to that box of clothes or vinyl records or Hot Wheels, more than we want to figure out how to stay in a house, we just don't let go of our stuff. At the end of the day, it's insane to me that we just don't let go of our stuff. And I bet even just recently emptying your house, Andrew, and traveling, there's still half that stuff you could probably get rid of and shrink that storage unit. Like most of the stuff that we store, we don't need. But as Americans, we are attached to it. It's an emotional hook. So we make money because of that emotional hook. Welcome back, everybody, to today's show. Today, we have a special treat, Mr. Justin Morgan, who's a dear friend of mine and uh, somebody who's an incredible, incredible person with an incredible story. He's a three-time Ironman triathlon finisher, which he, most recently he finished the St. George World Championship. He's a dad to three kids. He's also somebody who's extremely, extremely successful. He is a true lifestyle investor, meaning you know he invests in real estate so that he can actually buy back his time and have passive income coming through. You know, he has over 96,000 square feet of self-storage. For instance, he has other, you know, properties and units that he rents out. So we get into details around real estate, how to create deals instead of just find them. We also talk about his journey with uh, his son, which is ongoing, but trending in the right direction around his son's cancer journey and just some of the trials and tribulations around that. And what I love about Justin is just he's an open book and we have a really deep and authentic conversation. Mike, what stood out for you from this conversation? I had a couple follow-ups with uh, Justin offline about the uh, cold therapy and building out a cold plunge out of a freezer, which is something that he has done. And uh, him and I are going back and forth on coaching me on how to build one out. And I, I love the tactical that he was able to share when it comes to real estate investing. He semi-retired at, at you know what in his early forties, you know, because of his uh, success in business. And I just absolutely love that. We get into a little bit about homeschooling as well, and uh, I think it's a great conversation. So get ready uh, for another great episode with Justin Morgan. Welcome to the Better Than Rich Show with your hosts, Andrew Biggs and Mike Abramowitz. The Better Than Rich Show helps ambitious leaders who are on a mission to leave the world better than they found it, change their perspective on what's important, increase their income and impact, and systemize their life and business. If you've ever struggled with finding your purpose, have felt disconnected or distracted, or found yourself going through the motions, this show will remind you that what you do matters and will re-inspire you to chase your highest dreams. It's time for you to become better than rich. Welcome back, everybody, to the Better Than Rich show. Today, we are with Mr. Justin Morgan. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Riggs. I have my co-host, Mike Abramowitz, here with me. Justin, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Mike, how are you? I'm feeling fantastic. I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since I got time with Justin in Utah skiing. He was always ahead of me, so I got a great look of the back of his head. He is an impressive dude, so I think our listeners are going to be really in for a treat with this combo. I might be able to do a story before that, Mike, if I want to embarrass you, so we'll see if we get there or not. But it was a good experience. We got one more to share. Let's do it. (laughs) Cool. In the biz, listener, we call that an open loop. So stick around. We're going to pay that off here somewhere in the middle of the show. But looking at the back of Justin's head is a familiar place for a lot of people. You know, if we talk about your triathlon experience and all these different things, I can't wait to dive in and to break all that stuff down because you are seriously an impressive dude. And you said I retired in 2022 last year. Congratulations on that. I also love the way you phrased that because, hey, we're always working towards something. 
But just because you've experienced so much success, particularly in real estate, you've given yourself that opportunity. And that's where I would really love to start. So when you think about being this lifestyle real estate investor, what got you into it? And tell us a little bit about the journey you've been on because it's been a pretty cool ride. Yeah. So if we want to start specifically uh, with the career, I did what most kids are taught or were thought to be done in the 90s. And that was graduate high school and then go get in college. And so I did that. I wanted to follow my dad's footsteps where he was a commercial airline pilot and he was pretty senior in his career. I didn't really put two and two together that senior in your career and the beginning of an airline career were very different. And I did. I jumped into college to pursue a commercial aviation degree. And it was a couple of years into that degree that I really got to know what was going to be in front of me for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. And my wife and I were not excited about that. We weren't excited about being gone four or five nights a week. I wanted to be home at night for the kids. That was a value. That was something that was important to us. So I decided not to pursue that career. However, I was halfway through the degree. And so I went ahead and completed the college degree. And that's about the only thing I got out of college was how to complete really hard things, how to get things done that you didn't want to do. And there's also a benefit of going to college where you're learning to work with a lot of different people. And so there's a huge value there of going to college. But outside of that, it was, it was not an experience where I've ever been able to turn my college experience into dollars. I got a very expensive piece of paper in commercial aviation, and that was it. That was done. I got lucky a little bit in that I graduated in 2005 when the real estate market was booming. And what we've seen kind of during the COVID years was very similar of what was going on in 2005. And so a lot of people were getting into real estate, and it was really pretty easy to make money in real estate. And we can talk about what we were doing then, or we can kind of jump forward to what we're doing now. But that was the college experience. And that was the segue right into the career as a real estate investor in 2005. I definitely want to stay there for a second because nobody knows the market's pretty unpredictable. Some people have a little bit more talent what you're doing now versus what you did then, but history leaves some clues. So I mean, you're sitting here on 96,000 square feet of self-storage. You have the single family rentals. You have done really, really well in real estate. And what happens is if a beginner, I'll raise my hand to that one, is listening, (laughs) I would love for you to take us through what you did to the first deal and what you might inspire or invite someone now listening in today on what they might do for that first deal that could position them on the trajectory towards that lifestyle investor rollout. We had Kyle Reedstrom. I asked him a similar question on the podcast. We had Justin Donnell on the podcast. We asked him a similar question. So I want to hear what you would say to a similar question that I asked them. Okay, I'm glad you asked that because I kind of left things hanging there. Yes, real estate was booming in 2005, but what did I do to get into real estate in 2005? So I don't know that this is the answer for the new investor, so I'll cover that after this little story here. I was getting done with college. My wife and I wanted to buy our first home. And at the time, it was just a small little condo townhome. And they were building them like crazy, like we've seen the last few years. And so I met with a sales guy. We gave him a check for $5,000. And we began the construction project. And it was about a 90, 120-day process from deposit to completion. Halfway through that, 60 days into that process, the sales guy came to me. And keep in mind, I'm just getting done with school, trying to figure out what to do with career and work. And the sales guy came to me and said, hey, I've got someone that wants to buy your position. They want to take over where you're at. You're 60 days ahead of where they they would be. And they're willing to pay you $21,000 to take your position in this new construction build. Now, I'd already decided not to pursue an aviation career, but a lot of my fellow students and friends, 
they were getting their career started and they were making like 21 grand a year, 25,000 a year, 18,000 a year. So the idea of just giving a guy my position and making $21,000, a light bulb went off in my head. Like, well, I could probably do this again. And that's what we did for the first few years is we just went and locked up positions on new construction homes, which was legal back then. It's not something you can do now. I'll talk about what you can do now. But at that time, it was just getting creative. It was just seeing opportunity. It was just kind of looking at where's the highest reward for my time spent. Light bulb went off and I said, I want to do real estate and I don't want to work a lot. And so I'm just going to go and put new homes under contract and get in line and then sell my position in line to let other people get ahead of what their journey would be. And we could talk all day about how that applies to many things. But that's what I did to get started. That was the kind of a light bulb moment. That obviously led to other first deals and other ways of doing real estate. Can tell stories all day long there, but get creative, see things outside the box. And I knew I didn't want to pursue commercial aviation because I didn't want to be gone. But I also knew I didn't want to go make 20 grand a year right? That wasn't going to support my wife and my family. Seeing opportunity and getting creative would be uh, one of the ways to start your venture into real estate. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. And I mean, really cool that you had that light bulb moment, you were able to seize that opportunity and then follow that thread. Because some people might have, you know, of course, it looks like a nice offer. But some people are so risk averse, they say, I'm going to stay with my day job, or I'm not going to go into these more potentially risky things, but you were able to do it. One thing that's coming up for me is for that new person, and this is something that I bump up against. It's like, hey, man, I got a day job. I got kids. I can't be a real estate expert. At least that's the story going on in my head right now. I don't know as much about the space because I don't have as much experience as you. It's almost like, where should I be looking? I talked to these guys like you, and it's like, this deal is still in my lap. I was talking to my friend, but I was doing that. I'm like, where are you finding these things, man? It's like the secret back of this store or something that you guys are all going to. I'm over here looking stuff up on Zillow or something like a chump. So where are you actually finding deals? How do you actually find them and source them? Or is the answer, hey, man, there's no substitute for hard work and you got to put in the sweat. You got to really understand your market. You got you to gotta pound the pavement just like you would to be good at anything else. I don't know the answer, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so the short answer is deals aren't found, they're created. And the only way to create them is through education or through your community, through your connections. And so you're not gonna just pull up the internet and there's going to be a deal there that says, buy me, make money, have cash flow, build equity, retire early. That doesn't exist. Now, there is times in economic cycles where deals really can just be delivered to you. They really are just found but they're usually short-lived and they're usually the opposite of what everybody's doing during those times. So Warren Buffett says, buy when the blood is running in the streets and sell when the greed is high. It seems though that most people ask the question when the greed's high, why can't I find a deal? Well, when the greed's high, you can't find a deal, you have to create them. If you do want to find deals, wait for those market corrections, do the opposite of what everybody else is doing, get prepared, get gunpowder on the side, get ready. And those corrections always come. Those cycles always come. Sometimes they come nationally. Sometimes they come in micro markets, but they're always there. To recognize them, you got to have a little bit of education to be able to really even know, hey, I found a deal or I created a deal. Otherwise, you're not even going to know when it's there. Even if it's handed to you, 
you don't have the education, you're not going to be able to understand that, hey, this is truly found or this is truly created. And you bring up a great point because right now we're recording this July 2023 and there's some level of unpredictability in the market. And some people might say, have accessible cash for when things are ready to go on sale and just ready to go shopping and don't tie up some of your capital. Number one, what would be your counsel for that person? Where is the under the mattress to keep that stuff liquid? What would you recommend for that person if they do have their capital? What are the vehicles to keep it liquid? Question one. Question two would be, where do I want to feed my mind some things? Because you hear some people like Grant Cardone might say, I don't want to have any cash. Cash is trash. I need to have all my money working for me. So therefore, if it's not working for me, then it's a waste. But then you have the other concept where it's like, you got to kind of sit on the, have your accessible cash. So when things go on sale, you could go shopping. What's your philosophy here? I'd love to hear you just kind of riff on that. Oh, man. I don't feel like I'm probably the best one to educate or to give advice in any way about the best way and the best place to put your cash. I'm pretty heavy one-dimensional real estate guy. Now, the question is the cash is trash, Grant Cardone or anybody else out there saying, hey, what am I going to do with this, this money that I've got that's being beaten by inflation right now? It's the dollars being devalued. What should I do with it? I think I want to back that. I want to reframe those questions completely and put it back on the listener, put it back on yourself and say, really, what are your goals? Because you can chase shiny objects. You can say, well, this guy says this, so I'm going to go do this with my money. This guy says this, I'm going to go do this with my money. I did that. I did that for a lot of years to a fault. I thought this was the way to get rich. I have a best friend and a brother from high school. And it was crazy early on how many different ventures we used to chase because it was just chasing the dollars. The question that I want to ask you, the question I want to ask your audience is, what is the life that you're chasing? Because that might not have anything to do with dollars, or it might have very little to do with dollars. And when you can define the life that you're trying to chase then it helps direct what you're doing with the dollars that you do have. They might be a lot, they might be a little, but there's a lot that can be done to help you live like a millionaire or to help you have a lifestyle that you want that isn't directly driven by, I executed on a specific strategy that worked really, really well. That is a great answer. I love that answer and it triggers a follow-up and I'll kick it to you, Andrew. You take me as someone who has a framework for this, Justin, where it's like I make decisions based on this framework. What might that framework be for you to make your investment decisions as a lifestyle real estate investor? That framework's always changing, right? Life always throws us curveballs and things adjust and change. I'll speak to maybe a younger audience first to answer that question. It's the audience that wants to go chase the Ferrari the fast cars, the big house, the vacations. I think as any young, driven male entrepreneur, somebody that just wants something more out of their lives, there's a lot of that out there. And there's a lot of that in today's social media world where we want to go out and we want to chase those things. We think that that's the road to happiness. And it is a road to some happiness. We're going to get to a point and then realize it's pretty empty on the other side. In fact, it's very empty. And even those that might be accumulating a lot of wealth and be focused on those sort of material possessions and those goals, they're just going to keep moving that goalpost and it just keeps changing. So the framework for me is to try to not move the goal the goalpost too much. The framework is to be happy in the present, to understand that right now what I have, where I'm at at my age, with my family, with my health, that's perfect. And I'm a wealthy man. The money comes and goes and the opportunities come and go. And as they come and go based on those seasons of life, I'm at a season of life right now where I'm very, very picky 
with the assets that I buy and the time that those assets might take away from my family, away from my health, away from my self-care. Another person that has a younger family, doesn't have teenagers, maybe doesn't have health challenges or whatever it might be that's consuming some time or that they know that they need to allocate that time elsewhere, they might have time to go get more education, to chase that deal, to do a heavier lift on that deal, to create the opportunities, to create the wealth that's there. Whereas someone else might not want that right now. Does that answer the question, Mike? It does. It's a great answer. And the reason why it's a great answer is because circumstances are always changing. And that's where sometimes I get stuck because in my early 20s, I had three rental properties and then the market crashes and I'm near bankrupt and floundering. But as a single dude in his 20s, I could handle a little bit different type of risk than I can now with a medically complex son. And my wife is pregnant with round two. And like, it's just a different chapter of life. So yeah, that is the appropriate answer. I was hoping a little bit more tactical of like, yeah, these are my six steps. These are the six <laughs> questions I always ask myself when it comes to making you an know, investment deal. I think a lot deal. of people look for that, right? <laughs> it's, it's shiny. It's like, oh, if I just do these seven things, I'm there. And then all of a sudden life throws them a curveball and they're unhappy. Life is just going to be that way. The deal is going to be the curveball. The wife might be the curveball. The kids might be the curveball. So sorry to disappoint, but that's seriously the answer. The answer is really find first what you're trying to build in your lifestyle. Let those things come in and out and be happy with them as they come in and out. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, one of the things that you say is that having a million dollars is overrated. That shouldn't be the goal. And I love what you're talking about with the house, with the cars, with these vanity metrics that we chase. Maybe it's attraction of the opposite sex, having a lot of sexual endeavors or whatever. That sort of phase in our lives where we're chasing, chasing, chasing after something, only to realize that there's a lot of emptiness at the end of it. And rather than going after something, thinking, what's the lifestyle I want to live? How do I want to feel on a daily basis? You mentioned family, health, self-care. These are some things that are important to you. And I think that's really cool. One of the things that you also talk about is your step one freedom number. I'm curious about this concept around the step one freedom number. It sounds exciting to me, but I'm curious what that means. How might someone go about calculating what that is for them? So I might not give you the tactical answers you're looking for, but I'll give you some cool nuggets to chew on. Okay, so you that talk works. About- that works. I'll, I'll take it, man. Give it to me. I'll take it. A million dollars being overrated. And a lot of listeners are going to say, who the hell is this guy? A million dollars? That's everything. That's my goal. That's what I'm working for. And it is. I mean, the, the idea of being a millionaire, although it used to mean a lot more years ago than it does today, as far as actual wealth and actually what that will buy, the idea is still that there is an end to something that the idea is I can hit a million dollars in my bank account, I'm going to magically be happy, and I'm going to magically be retired. And both of those are totally false. That's not the case. You will not be happy, and you will not be retired. I could go into the tactics of why that is, but let me say what might be a better approach to that, something that you may have not considered. And that is truly what a million dollars is going to do for you to go back to that idea of how to live your life as a lifestyle investor or is just somebody that wants to pursue life on their terms. And so I'll give you this. Most of us want a million dollars in our bank account, and then we figure we can go and live life according to our terms. Well, the only way to really do that is one, eat the golden goose, which is going to run out, chalk away at that million dollars, or two, invest that million dollars and get a rate of return. Let's say that you decide that you're not going to eat the golden goose and you're going to go get the rate of return, right? It's pretty safe to say that something like a 12% rate of return would be pretty awesome. That's something consistent, maybe it doesn't take up too much of your time, but 12% would be great. Well, 12% of a million dollars is, anybody want to help me out there? 
bucks, which is how much per month? 10 grand a month. 10 grand. 10 grand a month, right? So if I was to give you the choice and say, hey, do you want a million dollars or do you want 10 grand a month? What would you choose? This is a good question to ask ourselves. We start to cause our brains to think a little bit about, wait a second, what could a million dollars buy me? Or what could 10 grand a month buy me? If you're focused on living life, you're probably going to choose a 10 grand a month because that's going to take a huge edge or completely retire you. Depends on where you're at in the country. It depends on your spending habits. Depends on your ultimate goals. But that $10,000 a month coming in the door is really what most people want at the end of the day because what a million dollars really represents to most of us is this idea of freedom. If I became a millionaire, I'm going to be free. Well, partially true. What you do with a million dollars can provide the freedom. But I'm going to argue that $10,000 a month has the exact same effect as having a million dollars in the bank properly invested because now you have a lot of choices on that journey, that goal to be free. If I consistently gave you 10 grand a month, you would make different choices in your life. Most of us would. We probably wouldn't be chasing the same deals. We probably wouldn't working the same job or doing the same thing. So my argument, my idea, the thoughts to consider here are if you could just get to $10,000 a month, effectively, you're a millionaire. You can live life on your terms. Well, what I love about this is when you're raising this private money in real estate, you're doing that for yourself, but you're also doing that for other people. So it's like this concept of 10,000 a month. Again, we had Kyle reached him his passive 25K. This is such a big concept to a lot of our audience because what Andrew and I teach with operator to owner and with our virtual assistant services and everything inside of Better Than Rich, we teach win back your time so you can spend time on what matters most to you and reinvest that time. Well, one of the ways to do that is build this machine with your business, and then you build the machine with the business that makes you money. And then what do you do with that money is to put the money to work for you. So the money makes you more money. So the business has predictability to make you money, and then the money is making you more money, and you have more predictability and cash flow. And getting to that place where this the high level of predictability is, I think, what a lot of our listeners are after. And one of the things that you do, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, is by raising this private money in real estate, you'll take these business owner types that, hey, I have this capital, I have this money, you go put it to work for me, you make a return, they make a return, you're doing the work with your education and the stuff you already did your due diligence on and me, hey, I just want my money to work with me. Pay me whatever you could pay me on that. Fill me in if I'm missing something here because that sounds like a really beautiful kind of wheel of helping yourself while helping other people get what they want while you getting what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I don't remember the thought leader that said that, but if you help enough other people get what they want, you ultimately will get what you want. All tides raise the sea, right? Everybody goes up together. So there are those that follow the plan that we talked about to begin with, right? Go to college, get a degree, get into the workforce. Those are the doctors, the attorneys, the lawyers, the white collar professionals, the blue collar professionals, those that are out there that are doing their craft and doing a really good job at it. They don't have the time to push towards education in another area. So they're looking for those that would have more passive, semi-passive or very passive investments that they can invest side by side with them to be able to get into that passive snowball 
And so the returns might not be as great as this like 12% that I'm talking about, but they have a lot of earned income or they're going to continually invest to build a stockpile of earned income to be able to invest in real estate or other investments, other businesses, things like that. My vehicle is real estate. That's where I believe a lot of wealth can be created. And a lot of people have the ability to create wealth in real estate. It doesn't take a lot to get there. And so, uh, yeah, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, one of the big investors that we've had over the years owns a plumbing company. They just show up every day and they do the same thing and they do it really well and the money keeps coming in, but they're very, very busy. And so they don't have the time to go out and invest, but they have the money to invest. Yeah, that's awesome. And one of the things that you help people do is find private money, like raise private money. Can you speak about that a little bit? How might someone do that? Because there might be someone listening who maybe doesn't have as much dry powder, but maybe they can put some sweat equity into something, right? Or maybe they can find a way to raise that private capital and be the one who's sourcing the funds for other folks. And therefore, they're going to get their return that way. Uh, How does that work from your perspective? Because I know that's one of your specialties. Yeah, a lot of our success has been accelerated through the ability to be able to help and leverage other people's money into the real estate deals that that we found, or shall I say, we created, right, Mike? <laughs> so those deals that we've created out there and to be able to take capital that is needed to deploy it to be able to do bigger and better things and to get bigger and better returns. So first is, Andrew, you want me to speak specifically to the person that's looking to go out and to raise private capital for their investment ventures. Is, is that right? Just make sure I'm on the same. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Okay. So I specifically teach and educate, and we just more recently got into the space, a way to be able to contribute and to be able to help those that were just a few steps ahead of them. And so I speak primarily to small and medium-sized investors that are currently going out and borrowing institutional money or hard money, expensive money, and they're looking to scale and to build faster. And so we deploy certain tactics through their network to be able to get them exposure to first build credibility. You need to let people know what you're doing and to build trust in people's mind. People do business with those that they like and trust. And so if you're a good operator and you're looking to build trust with those that you associate with, then we have a plan in place where we can help you get out there, get your voice out there, get your message out there, showcase what you're doing to the market so that other people can look at the opportunity to invest with you. And then we go through A to Z there with paperwork and everything that needs to be in place to be in compliance and to make sure that you're doing things right and educating not only yourself, but in educating your investor pool on what meets their best goals, their best needs to help them to get to where they want to go. Well, I love this. Sorry to jump right in there, Biggs, but I absolutely love this because really, if I have a good network and I have people that know, like, and trust me, and I can build a brand around this, potentially, potentially, I build a brand around this, know, like, and trust. And I have people that, yeah, here's 25 grand, here's 25 grand, here's 25 grand. And I have four people. Now I have $100,000 from other people's money. And then I take that hundred grand and I go to someone like you or someone like a Chris Larson who is on the show or someone like a Kyle Reedstrom or someone who has access to deals and say, hey, I have $100,000 of other people's money, OPM. I'd like to put it to work for me. Also for them, maybe it's vice versa. Maybe I find the deal first and then raise the money. But either way, how much can I get on a return on this? We'll give you 12% on this hundred grand. Well, if he promises them 8%, 
And as the middleman, he keeps 4% for himself. That's 4% on the 100 grand. He pays himself $4,000 on every $100,000 that he raises just by being the middleman between the deal and fund and finding the money. Am I breaking this down for someone listening to this in a simple way using round math on how they could leverage their no like, and trust factor being a middleman between a syndicator or someone with the deals and people that have the money to put the money to work? So we're talking about two things, how to structure a deal. And then we're talking about returns. And we're talking about how people get paid in, in between all of that. So I don't love the example. The example that you shared, certainly there's ways to accomplish what you're illustrating there. But that's not where I would start at all. I'd start much, much simpler than that. Talking to the brand new investor, that might be as simple as finding a deal, getting some education, getting out there, finding a property. And then you need to go out and you need to get a loan for the property, but you don't have a down payment. So that's where dad, mom, uncle, family member, church friend, neighbor, they can come in and be a partner. And you can accelerate all the way up to raising millions of dollars and being a middleman, doing it the right way. But I just want to be really careful when we're talking about money, we're talking about regulations. We don't want to start there. We want to get the education first and do things the right way. I'll also state that some people don't want to go out there and have four partners. When you look at your life, when you look at yourself and say, this is the life I want to live, you might not want to be managing relationships with four people or 40 people or 400 people. You might say, look, I can get to that $10,000 a month freedom number, $25,000 a month freedom number, and I can do it with only 10 people in my life that I'm responsible for, that I'm looking after their capital, that I have a fiduciary duty. So it's very important to understand yourself and how you like to work with people. And when you start talking about money, it can keep you up at night and it can ruin family relationships. So yes, we can get there. We can talk about how you can be a syndicator and you can raise money and, and put parties together. It's a really, really beautiful business model for the right people. And then you can talk about, hey, just, I want one partner, one deal. I want two partners and we're going to scale this. It really depends on, again, the lifestyle that you're going after. And, and I just, you know, having been doing this for 17, 18 years now, done both of those. So I can speak real carefully on it can consume your life real quick if you do it wrong or if it just doesn't meet your goals and your style. And I appreciate that clarification because I immediately put on my uh, teenage boy hat when I was renting out rooms in my house for my friends at the party to go do their hanky panky and filling up the vending machine with condoms and candy bars and renting out the kegs and stuff and selling cups. And I'm like, there's ways to make money. So yeah, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> there's a million ways to make a million dollars, but there's also a million ways to ruin your life. And, and uh, <laughs> just be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate your mature response. I dig it. I have one more, one more real estate question for you because we have so many more things I want to ask, but we haven't had any experts on the show yet talk about self-storage specifically. And this is something I've listened to on several different podcasts in the past about like mobile home parks and self-storage. Like these are those under the radar type of investment deals that some people kind of overlook. There's a lot of like rental arbitrage and single family homes, Airbnbs, but like these mobile oh, home my goodness, and self-storage yes. kind of fall under that radar. If you have any type of backstory you want to share, there are any insights, intel, value you can offer about this type of investment, that would be amazing. And we would probably chop that clip up and turn it into something because we haven't had anyone riff on that yet. All right. So I'm not going to give you the tactics because there's a lot of better educators out there to give you like specific tactics, but I want to give you a big picture and maybe just a few things for your listeners to consider as they're looking at investments or alternative investments. If you want specific names of who are the best in the industry, definitely can 
pass those along to you for education. There's a lot of good. There's a lot more bad in the education world. But self-storage specifically became an asset class that I really, really got passionate about because I needed to lean into my strengths. And I was at a point in my life where I really understood what I was going after from that lifestyle perspective. From a high level, I wanted something that was more passive. I didn't want tenants. I didn't want toilets. I didn't want termites. I wanted something that was just concrete, garage doors, just pads that are there for people to go throw their crap in. Also, understanding tenant landlord laws, I wanted to get away from that. Self-storage doesn't have tenant landlord laws. You're just storing people's crap. So there was a lot of things and a lot more that we could talk about that caused me to be interested in self-storage. It was because I had seen in others the lifestyle that they were living and I said, I want that. Success leaves clues, right? Follow those that come before you. I said, I want their lifestyle. I want what they're doing with their lives, with their families. How do you get there? At the time that I became really interested in self-storage, we were flipping about a house a week. So we were running a really big single family resident house flipping business. I call that a really big job, but we were doing a house in and a house out almost every single week. We were 48 deals that, that final year, and I wasn't making a whole lot more money, and I was a lot more stressed. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. I started looking at commercial real estate. I started looking at cash flow, that freedom number. I just wanted the cash flow. I didn't need the millions of dollars. I didn't need the 20, 30, 50, $100,000 checks that were coming from flips if I could just somehow get to 10 grand a month, if I could just somehow keep elevating that cash flow just a little bit every year. And so we pursued some assets. We bought some assets, ended up buying a shopping center in Denver, Colorado, ended up spending a million dollars just doing a partial rehab on one section of that shopping center. We put in a swim school, ended up putting in a gym. Long story short, we got caught with that gym during COVID. And if you've paid attention to COVID and gyms and social distancing, that ended up being a really bad not so great deal for us. Got out, luckily. Very lucky to get out of that one strategically. But self-storage was something that I was really interested in. So here's what happened. We just talked about private money. I had a strength. I'd raised millions of dollars in private money through the single family game, through the small multifamily game. And I had an opportunity through a developer who had strengths in putting the deals together and had strengths in building the deal, but they had no strength in raising money. So they actually reached out to me via Facebook and said, we see what you're doing, help us. That was kind of one of those light bulb moments of I might have a little bit of a strength. I might have a little bit of ability to be able to raise money. And that was my first deal in self-storage. That's how I got into self-storage was actually just raising money, becoming a general partner in the self-storage deal to be able to fit into where someone else was weak and I was strong to creatively get my piece of that deal. So taking your assets, knowing what you have, knowing where you want to go. And when that opportunity comes, the deal's created. Hmm. So good. And I mean, I'm still going back I wrote it down in my notes, but deals are created, not found. And it just keeps coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back to that. On the self-storage thing, I mean, it's interesting. I have a unit because I'm doing some traveling right now. Mike has a unit because he's doing some office things. I was Thank just you for running it. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, there you go. And I, I mean, I live in an area that's really growing very fast. Number four in the fastest growing markets in the country. You should probably check it out, Justin. Get on the action here in Fayetteville. You forget I, the opposite of what everybody else is doing. So if it's fast, <laughs> there you I go. Want to be yeah. <laughs> ignore everything I just said. Right? Uh, but yeah. <laughs> but so one thing that's just almost coming up is like, what are the most common use cases for self storage? Because I see these things popping up left and right. I mean, huge, pretty nice places. I have a piano that I'm storing. We have to have climate control, for instance. What are the most common use cases for this asset class, and why do people actually use self storage as a consumer? 
from your perspective? Yeah, death, disaster, divorce. I'm going to add in there discovery. You're out there traveling the world. We'll keep it all D names. So yeah, anytime there's movement, anytime there's movement in a micro or in a macro market, there's need for self-storage. As we know, there's sadly always death happening, always divorces. Seems to be a lot of disasters that continue to happen and have always happened. Or that discovery word that I just kind of threw in there as a bonus, there's the millennials, there's the COVID work from home, there's the travelers, the RVers that are out there and their stuff goes in storage while they're out there living life. It, it's the best recession-proof asset out there, which I don't want to say publicly, right? Because there's a ton of people coming to the market right now to look for those deals. But it's so recession-proof because in up markets, people are buying stuff, they're expanding, they're moving out of mom and dad's home, getting their own home, but then they want the boat and the toys and the kayaks and the things to go with it. But the opposite, when contraction happens and the market goes the other direction and the kids move back home with mom and dad, or maybe the kids and the grandkids or multiple families are coming together, where does all their stuff go? It goes into self-storage. And uh, here in America, we seem to want to hold on to that box of clothes or vinyl records or Hot Wheels, more than we want to figure out how to stay in a house, we just don't let go of our stuff. At the end of the day, it's insane to me that we just don't let go of our stuff. And I bet even just recently emptying your house, Andrew, and traveling, there's still half that stuff you could probably get rid of and shrink that storage unit. Like most of the stuff that we store, we don't need. But as Americans, we are attached to it. It's an emotional hook. So we make money because of that emotional hook. We make money because there's always that movement happening in life and people have a need. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. My wife is from India and she always makes fun of that stuff because she's like super minimalist. You know, our house has almost nothing in it compared to other people. But even as we were packing, I'm like, oh my gosh, we have way too much shit. You know, so it's like, it still feels like so much stuff, man. I, I and, and Amazon's made it worse. We're just like, click, click, click and stuff just keeps showing up on our doorstep. I know it's brutal. As a result, where does it go? It's got to go somewhere. So into self-storage, it goes. So I'm curious, just to go back to the start, thanks for giving us the whole insight into real estate listener. That was some really great stuff there. Hopefully you're taking notes. As long as you're not driving right now, you're taking notes on your notes app or with a notebook. You mentioned something at the start of the show. And so I want to go back to that. But you said you had a funny story in relationship to Mike and what you guys were doing in Utah. Is that accurate? Or, you know, let's, let's yeah, transition here to the more fun man, personal no, stuff. Is there some... You, you run triathlons. I want to hear about parenting, all these different things. But let's start with the, with the funny story. If anybody says they have a story about Mike and Andrew doesn't know it, Mike, Andrew's like, dude, I, we can't go anywhere until I get the story. We can't go anywhere until sure. I get the story. I, I want to hear too. <laughs> no, so uh, we've talked about community and connection, right? And so actually, Mike, you and I met, but less formally, at a mastermind, at a dad's retreat. And we both went down to the hotel pool that I think we were there the first week of December and the pool was probably like 40 or 50 degrees. And you and I were hanging out in there doing our little uh, polar plunge, breathing, stretching, getting our day going in the hotel pool at 40 or 50 degree water. I don't know if you remember that, but that's my first introduction to you. That's so fun. I did not know that was you. That's actually really, yeah, that was me, man. that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with this. That is so cool. Yeah, I, and you, you'd been in the group longer. I was the new guy, right? So I was like the guy in the back, kind of like just scoping things out. And I'm like, I know this guy, I know this guy. And here you were in the pool and we're like saying hi to each other. So uh, polar plunge buddies. That's hilarious because you actually have a self-made cold plunge. Like, Because yes. I get these ads on Instagram or on say, social media and it's like this cool cold plunge thing. And then I go and it's like, 
50% off and I click it and like 50% off is like eight grand. And I'm like, what the hell, you know, for some cold water. So you've made your own. I actually have a deep freezer in my garage ready to turn it into one of these. So this is awesome. Please tell me how you did it. Fill me in, please. Yeah. So successfully clues. I just followed a few other guys on Facebook and figured out how they're DIYing their own cold plunges. You can buy them out there. You can spend five to fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to get your cold water therapy in your backyard. But I knew that they were all operating off the same kind of principles, the same kind of parts. And so this is something that I adopted late last year as a therapy for myself, both physically and mentally. It's a practice that I've been doing now for eight, nine months, actually a little bit longer now. It's changed a lot of things for me physically and mentally because I wanted this practice to be in my life, like eating. And I knew I wanted to be around long-term. I wanted to get to know the parts and I wanted to get to know the systems. So I decided to DIY my own system and I built it for about a thousand bucks. And it's running the same chiller, the same pump, the same filter as some of the five, $6,000 systems. And I just threw it together with some two by fours and a horse trough. And of course, like I said, filters and pumps and stuff. So it's very sanitary and it's an amazing, horrible experience to get into cold water every day. But we could do a whole podcast on the technical sides of that, but really the emotional, the physical benefits of it. And just the stories that I've seen in my life, in my kids' lives, in my wife's life, as we've chosen to adopt and do what, quite frankly, is torture the beginning of every day. If you do the hardest thing at the beginning of the day, something you really don't want to do, somehow it makes everything else really easy the rest of the day. And I joke around, I, I served in the military many years ago. And the first thing that you're taught in the military is to make your bed, right? For some kids, that's the hardest thing. But no matter what happens with your day, when you come back into your room at night, your bed's made and somehow your day ends up good. Well, for me right now, there's a lot of things, but one of those things would be uh, cold therapy, cold plunges. We do that as a family. My kids do that. You can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram. We get into cold water. I'm literally almost every day. My kids are kind of hit and miss. My wife, it's been amazing to watch her just really do something that is so uncomfortable. At the end of the day, we live in this society of so much stinking comfort. I mean, just 100 years ago, we had to get out and farm in the sun and in the heat and in the cold. And a couple hundred years ago, we'd have cars. We had to walk. We just have so much comfort around us. Our bodies need something to shock it. And so I really enjoy some of the self-care routine that I have. And uh, cold water is a pinnacle of that self-care routine. I want to riff on that for a second. I didn't know we were going to go in that direction, but I need to. So this practice just to fill in the listeners, what I used to do, and by the way, the Cliff Notes version of this is I started the cold therapy because it was a part of helping increase the male factor infertility that I was diagnosed with. And then for those that follow my journey and whatnot, but like part of it was cold therapy and it sucked. And it's been years of doing it to try to get my account higher. And I had no education on this. So I would go in build my adrenaline, build my, like, make my move, Tony Robbins shit. And I would go in the cold and I would get my adrenaline up and I would be like, ah, like yelling. And like, I would be at like conferences and my roommate wouldn't know what the fuck I was doing in there. Cause I'd be like huffing and puffing and yelling in the, in the shower, you know? But then I got a little bit more educated on the Wim Hof method and it was almost opposite. What served me is getting into more of this meditative state before going into the cold. And that way I could be in this calm, calm, energetic going into the cold from that place. And I was able to last a little bit longer, a lot longer in some cases, and really, as you said, handle the torture. 
Can you speak to where you're at? I mean, if you're doing this daily, I mean, going into probably sub 55, I'd assume, 50, maybe even colder. Three minutes, I'd assume, is probably somewhere in that two to three minute mark. What is your practice when it comes to getting into the right mindset? Or are you at the point like you're just like, no, I just go in. I don't have to do that meditative psycho stuff before you go into it. Yeah. So a lot of questions there. I really appreciate each one of them and really appreciate your journey because each of us have our own journeys on why we choose to put practices into our lives. Oftentimes it's a big why. It's a big why in our life that causes us to do something hard. My hope is that most of us and those of us that do have a military background of uh, learning just to embrace the suck, we should be doing things that are hard just because we want to do them. And I think of it more as like, A lot of us have a goal, right? We think the car, the wife, the house, we push towards a certain goal that once we get there, like we have to start back over. But doing things like cold therapy is not a goal. It's a ritual. It's just part of your life. So for me, I've had to figure out where I respond best to this embracing the suck, doing something hard with the cold therapy. I am three to four minutes and I'm at exactly 50, 51 degrees. Because I have a chiller, because we can set the temperature, because I can get in the habit of trying to do it at the same time every day, I can nail that and then I can start to track where my body's at. I can also then start to introduce shocks to my body so that I don't hit a certain plateau. So doing the sauna before the cold plunge causes your body to kind of reset, change things up. There's different things that you can do. But 50 degrees is my sweet spot right now. When we started this back in the winter of last year, we were breaking ice. And then we'd stick a little turkey uh, thermometer in there, right? And we'd see we're like 32 degrees or 36 degrees or 42 degrees. And we'd get into the water and, and there's ice up to our necks, really cool pictures, really awesome when your kids are doing that. And they've got chunks of ice that are an inch thick there. But interestingly enough, in the summer, in the last number of months, my sweet spot to really reach a very uncomfortable chill The point at which when I get out, I'm shaking and it takes me anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to warm up. That's where I want to be right now. That's where my body's responding. And I know some of my friends and neighbors, all they can do is get in there for a minute. Maybe it's the sensitivity of their nerves. But my advice would be start with doing cold therapy in the shower. You'll find that actually a cold trough or cold immersion is easier than doing it in the shower where you don't have these little beads hitting you in the back of the neck and your roommates aren't asking all the questions. But breath is another part of my practice that you were talking about what you do. I incorporate that after as part of my warm-up procedure, as part of my breath work meditation in the morning, because just getting into the cold water does pretty good at this point. And I make sure to submerge a few times while I'm under there to get all of the systems in my body activated, all the nerves stimulated. But it's been an amazing journey to go from, you know, ice chunks in the 30s and seeing how my body reacts in the winter when your core temperature is obviously lower in the winter to in the summer, finding a sweet spot. And that's been my sweet spot. That's been my journey. And that's been enough for me to really reach the temperatures that I need to release inflammation, to get a good dopamine hit that's going to last for hours on my body and, and to reset some of the systems that I have via the cold therapy. That's awesome, man. I love that you made this not only a ritual for you, but a ritual for your family, because I'm sure some family members might just think the person on the other end of this idea is insane, but they've embraced it. 100%. (laughs) I think that speaks to your leadership in your household, obviously, as well. And I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit later. But listener, if you haven't listened to Andrew Huberman on this topic, he has some really great stuff. I really enjoyed what I've learned from that. Everything that Justin's saying there about becoming cold adapted on how do you get started? How do you ramp it up? Some of the benefits, both mentally and physically. So 
check out the Huberman Lab podcast uh, for more information on that. You're talking about doing hard things. I mean, you're a three-time Ironman triathlon finisher. And the most recent one you did was, I think, just a handful of months ago in St. George. I can't imagine it's all that cool there in the desert. It's got to be one of the most treacherous Ironmans out there. Why? You know, like, why do you do this, man? Why do you choose to take on these tremendous feats? And what's it like to push yourself through that, through the training process? Do you ever have doubts? I'm just curious to hear your point of view on that. I feel like I was blessed with something that I got genetically from my parents. And that was just the desire to keep pushing. I realized that a lot of people out there don't have that desire. My heart opens up for them. I do believe that desire to do hard things, the desire to keep pushing can be cultivated. I'm grateful that it just kind of comes naturally to me. And there's those times and seasons in life where you just don't want to get out of bed. I get it. I've been there more often than I like to admit. But generally speaking, I have a desire to set goals and to go after things. And so uh, I'm that guy that went to an Ironman event almost 10 years ago. And I was watching my wife's cousin come across the finish line. I got an itch and I had to scratch that itch. I'll be real vulnerable with your audience and say that I signed up for my first one in 2019 to do the beginning of 2020. Lucky or unlucky, I'm not sure which, but COVID hit and all those type of events canceled. That kind of took the wind out of my sail a little bit, but I signed up for another one in 2021. And I went check-in day to get my gear, my bag, my bracelet, my numbers, and I didn't show up the next morning. I didn't go to the event. I just checked out. It was a mind game for me. It was something that was so big and so difficult that I let the evil voice, the bad voice inside of me get the better of me, and I didn't get on the bus that morning. So finally, here it was, 2023, May, in my backyard, in my hometown, world championship, I was able to complete the world championship course. I was able to do two others in between that, but I finally got back on the horse. I finally did it, did it well, did it in a respectable time, had a great time. And I'll say there's a few things that allowed me to really accomplish that, that feat, which was big for me. Some people it's huge, some people it's small. For me, it was a big one at this time in my life because of life challenges with family. Over the last year, I didn't get to train as much as I wanted to train. I didn't get the feeling that I was going to show up and perform at my best. Yes, I'm here in the desert. This race was in the desert. It's cold at night and really hot during the day. The temperatures fluctuate, have a big, big range. But it was such a joy to be able to compete in that event, especially after what a lot could argue is the hardest year of my life for my family and for myself. I showed up every day in that damn cold plunge, right? I showed up every day saying, I'm going to do this. And so it really wasn't a question at the end of the day, whether or not I was going to show up and get on the bus and start the swim and then do the ride and then do the run and complete the Ironman. Yeah. Well, such an incredible story, man. And thanks for taking us on the full ride. And even that moment where the angels here on one shoulder and the devils on the other, and we could say the stakes are larger because you put so much effort into the training period, but we all face that on a daily basis. Going to the gym, jumping in the cold plunge, doing the work you know you're supposed to do. And so often we misunderstand what freedom is. Freedom isn't the ability to do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want. It's the freedom to do what you need to do, you know, when you need to do it, with who you need to do it for. And ultimately, I think that's the more masculine, mature approach that all of us need to be taking. And for you to then go back and hit this world championship and be a triathlon finisher, despite what you have going on personally, has been really inspiring for me as a friend of yours. And it's really cool to have people like you in my corner, man. So thanks for that. Thank you. 
And I think if you don't mind, I will ask you about what is going on with the family right now. I know the last update I got from you, I believe, is cancer-free. But just to fill the listeners in, <laughs> yes. um, you know, with your son, Austin, he's been going through his own cancer journey. I personally can't imagine what that's like. Mike has had a harrowing story with his firstborn as well. But talk to us about that. What was that like as a dad? What was it like, you know, leading your family through this experience? And in some ways, you're still in this experience. But, you know, walk us through what that's been like. Yeah, you bet. First off, thanks for starting with the good news. We are cancer-free. My 15-year-old came down with leukemia last year. It's just one of those things. Being a guy that likes to control things, you know, God has a different plan. His plan was to strengthen the Morgan family in ways that we didn't want or think or uh, desire to be strengthened. And my oldest, Austin, developed leukemia, a blood cancer. His type of cancer, which is really rare, comes on very quickly, can kill you within three weeks, if not caught, but it also goes away really quickly. So we're blessed to have only been on this cancer journey now going on eight months, but we've been cancer-free for the last six weeks and now we're just doing a couple of preventative rounds of chemotherapies to just make sure we got the little boogers that are in the blood and to make sure that we can reset his body so that we can build back from here. The good news is cancer-free. The other good news is this has been the greatest blessing of our life, of my life. It's taught me more about myself. It's taught my family more about themselves. Should they continue to learn those lessons? It's brought my wife and I really, really far apart to the point that for the first time in 20 years of being married, I moved out for five days. I couldn't handle things. I wasn't there mentally to be able to take the world on. But some beautiful things happened that taught me more about myself. I moved back home. My wife and I are in a better place than we've ever been in our marriage. As we support, as we educate, as we encourage, and as we make decisions, some of them ours, some of them his, as we navigate the cancer journey of being parents with a son with leukemia. I kind of hinted at it while I was telling the Iron Man story. I hinted at it while I was telling the cold plunge stories. But the joy of completing something hard while completing something hard just adds to the sweetness of both. It adds to the sweetness of everything. I just so strongly encourage that people find ways to challenge themselves so that they can take on life's challenges more later. And that sounds kind of, I think the word is masochistic. It sounds like you're just out there to hurt yourself. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting challenging yourself and I'm suggesting being, we've had this tone the whole conversation. If you really want to get to know yourself to really get to where you want to go, as you get to know yourself, you know when you have a scratch that you need to itch. And for me, that was 2013 showing up at an Ironman saying, one day I want to do that. I can go back at many of the really enjoyable things that I do in life, whether that's riding bikes or whether that's canyoneering and rappelling off of big cliffs. You know, all of those things came because I, I was introduced to it at some point and there, there was something that, that clicked inside of me that said, I want to go do that. I think the same thing can be said for vices in our life. We know what inside of ourselves, we know the little angel voice inside of us when we're doing something that we don't want to be doing. So just do less of it, right? Listen to that. Do more of the good stuff that can challenge you and help you grow and help you become a better version of yourself so that you can take on not only your own personal life challenges, but then hopefully, hopefully you could help other people get through their challenges. Again, I don't want it to sound wrong, but it's been an incredible journey to have the privilege to be a dad that needed to guide and lead a family in such a challenging time. I look at adversity. I look at struggles as, as a blessing. I look at it that way at this point in my life. I didn't always look at it that way, but they're really a blessing to challenge us to find the hero within us and to show up and to be that hero that we wanted to be when we were three, four, and five years old. We knew we could do anything. 
it's fun to be that that in your 40s or your 50s and to show up because you know you can do hard things. And this journey of cancer has been one of those hard things, almost equally as hard as getting in cold water every day. But at the end of the day, it's just going to lead to the next challenge because life is not just always the good. It's really the good that gets us between the bads because it's the bads that teach us the most about ourselves. Well, I truly appreciate that whole segment right there, Justin, and something that was really resonating as I'm listening to this. It brought me back to when I wrote Grab Tomorrow, Your Best Year Ever as the first book. And one of the things they put in there is that your intentional growth is what prepares you for the circumstantial growth. And that's why I've been so immersed in personal growth to everything that you just shared, because sometimes we don't know when that tornado is going to come by all the stuff that we're doing before the tornado comes is preparing us for when it happens. And too many people think it's not going to happen to them, but you're a testament to, hey, let me just keep growing myself personally and professionally, psychologically, spiritually, relationally. And if I just continue to grow, I'm going to be able to handle whatever life circumstances come my way. So I just honor you, respect you. I love Love it. What you and Stephanie and Austin and Shaylee and Brock have had to, you know, encounter over the last several months. And truly appreciate you being here, man. And we love to ask every guest at the end of every show before we part ways. And I know a bunch are going to want to stay in touch with you. So we'll ask you three questions and then let us know how we could stay in touch. But the first question we like to ask every guest is what do you think the world needs most today? Oh boy, big question, right? The world, big economics, everything going on, all the struggle and the pain that people feel. I feel a certain weight when that question's asked. The macro question is, the world needs fathers and families. That's the big macro, but there's oftentimes we can't do a lot about that. So I'm going to take it a step farther beyond that. And families need connection. And the step beyond families needing connection is we have connection, right? We do Christmas dinners. We do Thanksgiving. We attend 4th of July family reunions together. But I believe the world needs to get off their screens. They need to get outside and they need to have adventure. I think that through getting outdoors and getting on an adventure together as a family, that's greater glue than showing up at Christmas dinner or Christmas Day or the 4th of July parade and being on our screens and being distracted and being around with friends. So I think the world needs to take the family on adventure and to get outside. Great answer. Thank you for that. Question number two, what one to three books have impacted you that you think everyone should check out? All right. I kind of knew this question was coming and listen to your podcast. So I wanted to give a personal book, kind of a business life book. And then I wanted to give a, a family book because I think those are the three areas of life that we kind of all want to kick butt in. So Carol Dwick, Mindset, that's a fantastic personal book. Highly, highly recommend it. If you're going through struggles personally, Byron Katie has a book called Loving What Is, and that's a real butt kicker. If you choose to do the work, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. On kind of the business self world, I've got a book that I consider scripture in my life. Certainly a religious man, certainly follow Christ. There's a book out there by Napoleon Hill, one that a lot of people don't know about. It's called Outwitting the Devil. It's a challenging book to read, <laughs> um, but it'll really, really wake you up to not only what's going on in the world, but what's going on with inside yourself. So I recommend that. And then my personal favorite this last 12 months for families is Hold On to Your Kids. I read that book four times in a row. My kids are 16 now, 14 and nine. And as they hit those teenage years, there's definitely a separation that happens. Part of that's good, right? They need to become independent. They need to find their own voice in the world. But how do I hold on to my kids? If I was to recommend start at chapter 14, it tactically goes into things that you can do and then you can kind of get all the stories. But it absolutely illustrates a lot of the weaknesses that are showing up in families right now. And that's been my favorite family book probably ever, but certainly this last year. 
That's great. That's a new one. By the way, I just picked up Out in the Devil. That's actually uh, one of my bathroom reads upstairs. And I happen to be in the bathroom upstairs. And I was like, hey, let me just pick this one back up. So it's funny, actually, you said that because that was like two days ago. Justin, our third question, nice. and that might have been TMI for the Oops. whole audience, but it's all good. Uh, <laughs> so, Justin, our third question for you is, what does it mean to you to be better than rich? Yeah, man. What does it mean to me to be better than rich? Um, we talked about this lifestyle. Getting to know yourself really is better than being rich because you can live in any environment and be happy. As I have teenage kids trying to figure out happiness and what life looks like, I'll throw another book in the mix, but it's Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He's in a Nazi concentration camp and he's finding happiness. He's finding meaning. If I was to tie that question up into two words, I'd say what is better than rich? It's freedom. It's cash flow. For some people, freedom might be a monk or a nun in a monastery, but for most of us, cash flow. So we talked a lot of, about some thoughts that you might want to consider in that idea of cash flow, what your goals are, how you can be the best version of yourself, and really how you can live like a millionaire with as little as $10,000 a month coming in of passive income. Well, thank you so much, Justin. This has been amazing. And uh, I'm sure that there's going to be listeners who want to stay in touch with you. If you want to follow you, learn more about what you're up to and, and perhaps work with you, where could they learn more? Yes, I'm super not fancy, super not techie. But if you're interested in the private money journey, you can just follow me on Facebook. If you're interested to see what we're doing uh, in our world of family adventures, you can also follow me on Facebook. So it's uh, just my Facebook account, Justin Cameron Morgan. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Same thing, Justin Morgan or I am Justin Morgan. I'm just the Justin Morgan out there that's got a career in real estate and a career at in adventure and a family that's just figuring things out as we go. So please follow the journey, connect with me there. I love it, man. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been incredible. So many great nuggets. Mike, thank you as always for asking such great questions and pulling on the right threads to get the most out of every single guest that we have. And listener, thank you. This show wouldn't happen without you. So assuming this episode has helped you, it's your turn to help others and share with a friend. Subscribe on YouTube. Make sure you leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify. And remember to leave today better than you found it. Until next week, we'll see you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Instagram at better than underscore rich and join our Facebook group at the better than rich show. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time. And remember, Leave today better than you found it.